20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go into my work, work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and he did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men were hired last, who were hired last, worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who, has, who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in the kingdom, in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. Come before you asking that you would help us at this time to see the beautiful things that you are saying to us through your word, the things that you have said to so many throughout the ages that have had the ability to completely change lives from the inside out, to redirect history itself. Your word is like a hammer. Your word is a two-edged sword that cuts deeper than anything, piercing even our hearts. And we need to hear from you this morning. We need to hear what you're saying to us and to respond in repentance and faith and love for you. Help us to see Christ as he is at this moment, exalted to the right hand of the Father. Help us to see him sitting at your right hand in our, in our minds and our hearts by faith. And help us to see what he has accomplished for us and to be moved by that and nothing else to follow him to serve you and to serve each other and to do these things for your glory and for our good and I ask that the meditation of all our hearts and that the words of my mouth would be acceptable to you at this time strengthen us now in Christ build us up in the faith and help us to be ready to continue to stand firm against the schemes of the devil in this age we live in and to stay faithful to you until the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we continue walking through the Gospel of Matthew, for, for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, um, Welcome, and I hope that you're, you're going to be blessed by this, but you can go back if you like and, and listen to previous sermons. I've been um, journeying through the Gospel of Matthew for, I think it's pretty close to a year now that we've been going through. And um, the, the overarching theme, or one of the main overarching themes of this Gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of God's Kingdom. And so he keeps using this term, the kingdom of heaven. So I want to um, think of this sermon with the title, um, Grace-Based 
service. Grace-based service. And really there's, there's only a few points um, that I want us to think about this morning. And really they have to do with guarding our hearts. There's a few points that um, have to do with issues that I think every one of us struggles with um, as Christians, not just as human beings, but even as believers we struggle until the day we die with these things. And one of them is entitlement. Entitlement. The next one is favoritism. And then there's the cure for those things that you see right in the middle of this chapter, which is the gospel itself is the only cure for the ongoing struggle that we have with these kinds of sins in the heart. And last but not least, I I think we see by the the two blind men who begged for mercy that, ironically, the example that we should follow, second to Christ, is the two blind men, as opposed to what's known as the inner circle, Peter, and then James and John in chapter 20. So look with me at at verse 1. Notice what Jesus says. For the kingdom of heaven is like. This is one of the ways that we know when we see these kinds of words, this kind of phraseology. The kingdom of heaven is like. We, we know Jesus is about to tell us what we call a parable. And as I mentioned before, we might have learned it in Sunday school that a parable is a heavenly story um, with an earthly point or something along those lines. Or an earthly story with a heavenly point. Excuse me. An earthly story with a heavenly point. And so Jesus is trying to get his disciples and those who are listening to understand what God's kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven. What it is like. And this parable that we see in the first 16 verses of chapter 20 is a response actually to Peter's question. Remember in chapter 19 we had seen this rich young ruler had come to Jesus. And he had said, you know, what what do I have to do to inherit Or in a sense, he was asking, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? And in response to Jesus' answer, he turned away because he loved his wealth. And Jesus says it's harder for a rich man, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's harder than, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And The disciples were dismayed when they heard this. And so you see there in in chapter 19, verse 27, Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And in response to this question, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, referring to not not this life, but the, the next heaven and earth, the new heaven and earth that are coming after time itself comes to an end, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for My sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and many who are last will be first. And that's the same way he ends this parable in chapter 20, verse 16. But he, he says it, he, he kind of turns it around. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And this parable is kind of a rebuke to Peter. If you just browse those 16 verses, basically what Jesus does is he presents a scenario. Um, vineyards was one of the most common agricultural um, types of uh, work, types of um, crops, uh, grapes. Um, the, the Israelites would have been uh, familiar with this language. Uh, in this time, this was a common job to work in a vineyard. And the, the agreed upon uh, price that we see in chapter 20, verse 2, which is a denarius, is basically a day's wage. That's what they would commonly earn. So you notice that there's five groups of people. Um, and the last one, the fifth group, comes in on the last hour. Jesus says that the, the landowner approaches them and says, I want you to work for me too. But there's no agreement with the other four groups. There's only an agreement that's made with the first group. And the agreed upon price is a day's wage. And really what I think this parable is supposed to point us to is that Peter and the disciples are represented by that first group. They, they were the first ones to follow Christ. Right? And so Jesus tells Peter some good news about the, the, the new heaven and earth that's coming, but then he gently rebukes him with this parable. He says, listen, let me, let me tell you about the economy of the kingdom. Let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this, this, con this concept of a vineyard was also um, familiar to the Israelites because this is what God used to call his people all throughout the Old Testament. He used to speak about Israel as if um, the Jews themselves, as the nation of Israel, was like a vineyard that God, the vine dresser, was working in. And, and so Jesus is saying that's what God's kingdom is like. It's like throughout the history of humanity, God is tending to his people. But there's something that you need to be aware of that he's telling Peter. He says, basically, don't think because you came in before anyone else, Peter, disciples, or anyone else for that matter, all of us included. We must never think that there's any reason why we should be entitled to anything more than anyone else's. You see the response there to these, and remember this is not a historical account, but this is the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. The men who were hired first start to grumble towards the landowner. It says in verse 12 of chapter 20, these men who were hired last, the 11th hour, and the 11th hour basically um, points out to the fact that work days were a lot longer back then than they are today. The work day would have started at about 6 a.m. and ended at about 6 p.m. So in other words, the, in this parable, the, the owner of the vineyard went out and found these men and they started working around 5 o'clock. And 6 o'clock had come. And so the, the first group which is supposed to represent Peter and his sinful, prideful, entitled attitude. They're saying, we've been here through the heat of the day, and boy, we, we, we know about heat, right? 
this time of year we're feeling it and, and I said earlier I don't know if it's just as you get older or what it is but I, I don't think I've felt heat like this before and so the, it's a very understandable attitude we worked longer we worked harder we, did, we dealt with more pressure we felt the heat literally and so these men are saying you made them equal to us you notice the language though in the in the middle of this parable right in the midst of the way he's telling this parable he's showing a, a terrible dangerous heart attitude because by saying you made them equal to us you understand the implication of that statement basically that's revealing a heart that thinks that that person is not equal you understand? It, it's basically a way, of, if you turn around and look at the other side of the coin, it's, it's, it's Jesus rebuking Peter by saying, you think you're better because you started this journey with me at the beginning. You think you're better than someone because you've been walking with the Lord a little longer, maybe a little stronger. This parable is meant to cause us to really examine ourselves and to remind us that we are equal. That there is no standard of, of better or lesser in God's kingdom. And there's no reason why we should have an entitled attitude. You see what the, the person continues to say? In verse 12 and then in verse 13, notice what the landowner says. Friend, he, he addresses him gently. Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. We say this a lot, don't we? Funerals, tragic situations. It's not fair. It's not fair. This thing that happened is just not fair. And here's what I think we need to come to grips with, brothers and sisters. Maybe this is really hard to, for you to hear, but it's not as simple as a phrase that's often used in response to that. Well, you know what? Life's not fair. We, we don't want to have a cold shoulder as Christians, but we should never think about God, His, His attributes, His character, and the way He works in the same way that we think about each other in terms of fairness. God is not like us. You know something that you will not look through the Bible and find? You will not find, just like you'll find the doctrine of God's grace, you'll find the doctrine of God's mercy, the doctrine of God's justice, the, the, you will not find the doctrine of God's fairness. If we were to really get what we call fair from God, you want to take a guess at what that would be? Hell. Yes, hell. As a holy and righteous God who has been sinned against by the entire human race, the only thing in, in His economy, in His mind, if you would want to put it that way, that would be fair would be justice. Everything apart from that is grace. And so it is the grace of God seen in Jesus Christ especially 
that must both motivate us, incentivize us, and cause us to follow Christ and keep us humble. See, the gospel is not just for entering the kingdom. It's for when you wake up in the morning and start to have these wrong uh, mindsets, for, 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 for when you start to feel like, well, this isn't fair, or this person's being treated as if they're equal to me or better than me, we mustn't think about life in those terms. And so this parable is a response, not just to Peter, but I'm pretty sure to all of us. I'm sure there are things going through your mind as I was just talking that the Spirit will gently work in your heart to help us to change our mentality. And that should be a prayer as we we face passages like this. In the same way that ten lepers were healed in Luke 17 and one came back, we must be very careful that all the countless blessings that God has given us, starting from our conception to this moment in our life, somehow get overlooked and trumped by various occasional events that we feel are not fair. And it's very easy for that to happen. So the first thing that we need to see and to guard our hearts against is any sense of entitlement. I think that, that's what Jesus is primarily focusing on in that parable. <clears throat> in an age that is flooded with uh, human rights and um, my rights and all these sorts of things, as Christians, remember this. Our most important thing in, in, in this life is not what rights we have, but what grace we've been given from God and how we're going to use our freedom and the gifts that we've been given to honor Him no matter what we're facing. And I think that's why uh, the Lord orchestrated that this passage is put together because after Jesus tells this parable, notice what He goes into right away. It says, As He was going up to Jerusalem, He takes the twelve disciples aside and He reminds them. He tells them again, this is the third time now that he's predicting his death. And each time he starts to reveal something else. And notice what he reveals in this third prediction of his death. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him, condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. This is the first time that he has ever shared those details. Now we know, not just that he's going to be put to death in a general sense, but that he is going to be put to death by the most horrific form of murder, of death, maybe in, in human history. If you go and do a study on Google of how crucifixion works, and maybe that would be a useful thing to do. You would see just how horrific of a death it is. I mean, in an age where we have um, friends and family who are going around wearing crosses on their chains and um, getting tattoos for whatever reason of crosses, I just want to ask you a question. 
Would you wear an electric chair on your chain? Would you go and get a tattoo of an electric chair? Or maybe put electric chairs all over your car and the walls in your house? Just think about those things. Because this is the symbol that represents the cost of our salvation. I'm not making any judgment by asking those questions, but really think about it. The cost of our salvation is what we are trying to symbolize when we put crosses up, or what we should be trying to symbolize. That's why there's a cross behind me. That's why there's an empty cross behind me. Because He is risen. He's not hanging there anymore. He's seated at the right hand of God. And we are to remember the cost of our salvation, which again is a type of cure against entitlement and against favoritism, which is the next thing we see. Look with me again at verse 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him a favor. Now look at the posture that we see here. The posture in and of itself is actually a good thing. People should kneel down before Christ. But notice what this lady does. She doesn't kneel down in the right way. She kneels down to ask for favor for her sons. Favor. Favor that she has no right to ask for. Again, we deserve nothing from God. But perhaps she had heard the prediction that Jesus had told Peter that in the renewal of all things, you, twelve apostles, will sit on twelve thrones. And so after hearing this, these kind of promises, not predictions, I should say, promises, because these are guarantees of things that will happen, it's not enough that she has heard that her sons will be seated on thrones and ruling with Christ. No, she says, um, just want to ask a little favor. You think my sons could be on either side of you, Jesus? I guess there's probably a little warning for mothers in there, and parents in general. Um, let us help our children also, no matter what age they are, to remember that none of us deserves the favor of God. This lady, uh, when you read the other uh, parallel passages in, in Mark and in Luke, you learn that this is the same lady who was standing next to Mary, James and, and John's mother. This is the same lady who was standing next to Mary when Jesus was dying on the cross. And Jesus looks down and he says to her son, John. He says to John that this is your mother pointing to his own mother, Mary. He says, behold your mother and, and woman, behold your son. He wants them to have that kind of relationship, recognizing that he is about to die and then soon after he's raised will be gone. He entrusts them to each other in a special way. I'm sure that as this mother was standing there, I believe her name's Salome, as she was standing next to Mary with two thieves on either side of Christ, where Jesus was completely humiliated, essentially naked, Maybe this question came back to her mind. Maybe she was 
greatly humbled at that moment saying, I probably should have never asked that question. I asked for my sons to be on either side of him and look at him now, surrounded by two thieves, treated as a sinner. But notice what Jesus, how he reasons with her. It's not just her that's involved in this question. Continue looking at these verses. 22, verse 22, Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, You see the the transition there? First we hear that the mother's asking, then it says, Jesus said to them, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? When you read this parallel passage in Mark, what you actually see is that the sons in Mark are asking the question. So when you put this all together, what's happened is that these sons were discussing and and desiring to have these places of uh, authority and these places of special favor. And the mother got involved in this request. And so Jesus responds to them because he understands the origin of this question is in the hearts of John and James, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder as they're known. They're asking for these special places, one on the right, one on the left. So Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? This cup refers to the cup of God's wrath, the cup of suffering that all through the Old Testament, many of the prophets, especially Isaiah, prophesies about a cup that is filled up with the justice of God. It is the cup that Jesus refers to in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And as he uttered the words of the, the, about this cup, we're told that the, the pressure was so great as he thought about what was in this cup, metaphorical cup, the pressure was so great that his sweat turned to blood. This is an actual thing that can happen to us. I forgot the name now. You can also find that on Dr. Google. But um, if you go and look it up, you can be under such excruciating pressure that your sweat can become blood. That we can actually bleed like how we sweat never happened to me. I don't know if it's happened to any of you. But that's what happened to Christ as he was thinking about what he was about to endure. And so he asked them this question. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. This is why Jesus said up front, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know. But he goes on to say, oh, okay. He doesn't say, notice what he doesn't do again. He doesn't just straight up say, no, you can't. He says, you will indeed drink from my cup. You will not drink the fullness of it. And you notice he owns it. It is my cup. I have come to drink this. That's what he talks about in verse 28. The Son of Man came to be a ransom for many. This is the ransom price of our salvation. He says, you will drink from this cup. You'll taste some of my suffering." And in fact, as we we, we were studying Romans 8, we talked about this. One of the signs that we are Christians is that we bear suffering for His name. 
It may not be the same across the board, but we will suffer in some way for being faithful to Christ. And it's worth the cost. It is worth whatever we suffer. So Jesus says, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And you notice the confidence that Christ has in the plan of salvation and the picture he's painting for us. That there is an order even within the Trinity that the Father has put together a plan before time prepared by my Father. Think about those words. Prepared by my Father. The places that we will have in eternity are prepared by the Father. We don't get to add into them like some sort of bank account. All of these passages, all of these various um, lessons we're learning are telling us that we need to put down our spiritual bank books. We need to tear them up and throw them in the fire. But Jesus says we will drink just like them, they, will, they drank for sure. Remember, James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. Stephen was martyred. And then of the twelve apostles, this James was the first to be martyred. John was exiled for the faith onto the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation from. And we're not sure exactly whether he was martyred after that. They tasted the suffering that comes with loving Christ and following Him in a world that hates Him. The world hates Christ, brothers and sisters. And if the world hates Him, they will hate us too for loving Him and proclaiming Him. That is what we are trying to, 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 to prepare for. That is what we need to be ready for. Again, look at verse 19 when He makes this promise that the Son of Man will be turned over to the Gentiles by the Jews. That's a way of saying he's going to be put to death by everyone. That represents the whole human race. He not only died for sinners, we are all guilty, not just of our own personal sin, but of his suffering and death. And his followers will taste a little bit of that cup. But praise God, if you place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The fullness of that cup has been drank to the dregs, has been completely drunk by Him. So that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We can stare death in the face and say, you are a doorway into greater life because it is finished. This is what Jesus is trying to do by telling Peter and Salome and her sons these things. Again, notice, notice which three apostles we're looking at here. These are the inner circle, right? His closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Not in the sailboat anymore. Peter, James, and John. The same ones who a few chapters before we're told they went up on a mountain and saw him transfigure before their very eyes into the heavenly glory that is to come. And they were so caught up in it, they didn't know what to do with themselves. They didn't want to leave that moment. 
But now here they are, feeling a little bit entitled, looking for a little extra favor. And then we have the two blind men. We learn in the parallel passages um, in, in the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, that one of these men was named Bartimaeus, these two blind men. And Jesus is continuing now. He's leaving Jericho. He's heading upward to Jerusalem still. And there's a large crowd following him. And these two blind men, Bartimaeus and his friend, are sitting on the roadside. And they heard that Jesus was going by. And they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they were rebuked by the crowd. And they, they, didn't, they didn't stop talking. The crowd said, stop calling his name. They, they shouted all the louder. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do? They asked for their sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. You notice the, 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 the difference here between the, the ten lepers who were healed and these two men. You can see that there was genuine faith in Christ before they received their physical sight and they followed him both of them they were believers this is the evidence that salvation has nothing to do with what you can see with your physical eyes or do with yourself but it has to do with hearing something about this man Jesus Christ and believing it in your heart we don't know how they heard but somehow they had heard about this Jesus and as soon as they heard he was coming, they, they didn't even know exactly what direction he was. But they raised their voices loud enough to say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They wanted to make sure that he heard them. And they would not be silenced. This is the resolve that true Christians have. You will not silence us. In a world that's saying, be quiet. No, we will beg for mercy for our own sin. Forgive us this day of our own trespasses. And forgive those who trespass against us. We beg for mercy for others. Because they need mercy too. I was thinking about the, the, the amount of contrast here. Between Peter and the, the, the rich young ruler. And then between the three apostles that were known as the inner circle. And these two men who couldn't even see. And I wrote down a line. Something like this. Three key apostles. Blind to their sin. Two blind beggars. By mercy come in. They entered the kingdom of heaven. For all eternity. And then received sight. Because Jesus showed to, chose to use them and to show that the reason we should come to Christ is for mercy. Not position. Not recognition. We should not need any form of incentivization. Is not His life, death, and resurrection sufficient for all that we need to love Him, to serve Him, to follow Him, to serve His Church, our Lord got up from glory, took his robes of glorious splendor off, 
and became a little child. And some of us can't get up off of our backsides to come serve together for one hour on a Sunday morning. Shame on that attitude. Some of us know that no one will believe the gospel unless we tell them about it. Let me ask you a question then. When's the last time you shared the gospel? We must share the gospel, brothers and sisters. Not just on Sunday or Wednesday, but every day of the week, we should say, Lord, please open a door. Not just help me to be a good witness with my life and testimony, but help me to say something about Christ today to someone. That's pretty much a prayer that I'll tell you he's going to answer. And he'll give you the words to say. Our greatest example out of all the men in this text are two blind beggars. Not the three inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who sometimes we elevate too much. I can tell you there's an entire so-called church that's put Peter way above a little bit of elevation for a couple thousand years now. Peter wouldn't have done that himself, though. You know how Peter became humble? Let me tell you how humble Peter was. He wanted to be crucified upside down. When they told him they were going to crucify him, he didn't even want to be facing upright because he was not worthy of anything resembling his Lord. That's the kind of humility that Peter developed over time. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 5, he exhorts the elders. He says, you know, serve those, shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly. And likewise, we as brothers and sisters in Christ should ask, as that old phrase goes, and I'm turning it around from country to church, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. We should seek to serve each other in every way we can think of. It doesn't have to be in a particular ministry. And we as a church should, should, should seek to serve the world that we live in. Following this pattern of Christ that we see again in, in, in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life, to ransom for many. You remember the, the way that he symbolized that? One of the last acts he did before he went to the cross. He took visually the, the lowest possible position in the, in the upper room by taking all of his robes off and getting down on the floor and taking a basin of water and washing his disciples' dirty feet so that they could have some clean feet before they ate dinner. He showed us what it means to serve. And I think a, a good passage that sums this up for us is found in Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> it's a passage that many people like to preach or, or study or share at Christmas time in particular. It's Philippians chapter 2. It's on page 831 if you want to read there. And we'll close with this passage. Philippians 2, starting in verse 4. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, Meaning he didn't manipulate or, or, or continue to make use of his godness, of his divinity, of his divine essence, but emptied himself, made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our pattern. A cross and a cup before a crown. May God help us to to be faithful to Him and to be those who are servants that are fueled by grace and by grace alone, by the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. May that be what compels us to stay true to Him until the very end. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for this time to come together as your children. We thank you so much that you loved us to send your Son to become one of us, to to live under the weight of the same standard that you will never change, the, the standard of your revealed law. To maintain his sinlessness in a world that was filled with sin and hostile to God, hostile to Him and to to bear the weight of all that hostility and all of that pressure facing even His closest friends, His cousins even, His brothers his family and friends who who looked to him while he was telling them about his sacrifice and asked for places of honor and position and favor. Let us learn from these passages what we should not do as well as what we should do, what we should not believe as well as what we should believe. Protect us from false teachers who would sinfully proclaim that we should be receiving great honor in this life from being Christians and perfect health and wealth and prosperity. Would you silence them and change their minds and protect us from ever accepting that kind of foolishness, please? Help us to understand that we have received the greatest 
and most sufficient gift of all in Jesus Christ Himself. You have given us adoption into your family, forgiveness of our sins, and eternal life through His living and dying and rising again. So help us live with the the second coming in mind, along with the promise that we will live in a new heaven and earth and we will have perfection as our existence, no longer to deal with all the things that we have to deal with now. Help us to be more molded by, by the love of God in Christ, more moved and motivated by that than anything else. Forgive us when we have failed to to do that. And please, would you, would you do these things, not just today, but on until we see Him face to face. Keep us faithful. We ask these things, Father, in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we sing our closing hymn, which is 642. Be Thou My Vision. I invite the power of praise the platform at this time.